This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, March 11th, 2022. Ahead later this hour, we're going to get a preview of the latest exhibit at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Dirty South. Matthew Moore attended a preview tour yesterday. We'll hear about that in a bit. First, let's go to Ford Smith by the telephone and talk with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. Hello, Michael Tilley. Welcome. Welcome to March Madness, where March Madness doesn't mean basketball, it means the weather. That's right. Who knows what it's going to be? I, I think um, you'll be able to go out on your front porch Sunday afternoon and enjoy what temperatures in the 70s. That's not today, <laughs> but that is Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we don't have clarity on the weather, but we've got a bit more clarity on the pilot training center that's coming to Fort Smith. What more do we know now that we didn't a week ago this time? Well, we had, um, and the talk business, talk business and politics was part of it, this Better Communities event, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But at that, Colonel Rob Ator, he's um, Director of Military Affairs for Governor Hutchinson, um, gave a little clarity. To, by background, this Foreign Military Pilot Training Center uh, is supposed to begin in uh, June of 2023. Um it will bring pilots, initially pilots and F-16s from Singapore, from the Royal Singapore Air Force, uh, to Fort Smith, here to Ebbing Air National Guard Base in Fort Smith. Well, in the run-up to this, as part of the environmental impact statement, there was information that the mission would go until 2029, which seemed interesting. Um, for example, you know, the city and the state are putting $22 million toward a runway extension that's needed for the center. So why would you invest that kind of money just for a six-year program? Well, Colonel Ator, not, not without a, he didn't say this with 100% certainty, but he was very confident um, that he, he said it would have what he called an enduring mission. Those are his words uh, that could last 30 years or more. Uh, and his point was that once you get a facility like this set up, the, the, the demand is there. The demand, according to him, is always going to be there. You're always going to have new planes, new technologies and planes that the U.S. military industry sells to foreign countries. And those pilots will need to be trained. That, that's He said that's been happening for decades and it will continue. And the Air Force is not going to set up a facility in Fort Smith just to move it, you know, in six years or whatever. So – that was interesting. That was a, a good bit of news to come out of that, the town hall that uh, we helped pull together. So, you know, an enduring mission with up to 800 more folks uh, in the area. Uh, they still throw out this $1 billion economic impact. I, I just, I don't see how it can be that much with just 800 folks. They say they've got the numbers behind it. I hope it's true. But uh, again, uh, good news. It's nice to hear that uh, there will be an enduring mission uh, with the military uh, background uh, back in Fort Smith. All right. Let's move on to what I thought was a typo on at TalkBusiness.net <laughs> when I first read the headline. That headline said, February building permit values up almost 300 percent in Fort Smith Metro. I was sure that you meant 30 percent, but it's 300 percent? Well, look, not only were you... Uh, kind of curious about that number, but when the reporter, when Tina Dale, who does these frequently and rarely gets anything wrong, if ever, sent that to me, I backed up and did my own math as well. Yeah, it's 298% increase. Uh, and these are building permit values from Fort Smith, Greenwood, and Van Buren uh, in February. 90.8 million, almost 91 million well ahead of the 22.8 million uh, in February 2021. Um, and it was also 187% increase over the permit values uh, in January. And year to date in those three cities, so the first two months, uh, permit value uh, uh, permit values are at 121.3 million. And that's 173% from 44.4 million. And let's stress again, those 2021 numbers yeah. were a record year. That was a record year. So, um, so what's what's behind it? Well, Mercy, I think we talked about Mercy Fort Smith is uh, in the middle of a 162.5 million dollar expansion. 
Uh, they pulled a permit for a little over 13 uh, million uh, in the year. So that was uh, a big part of it. Uh, in uh, Van Buren, uh, there's a 34 million permit pulled for the what will eventually be a hundred million dollar expansion of the Simmons food uh, processing plant there. So you had those two um, big values along with a lot of other, it wasn't just those, but but those were the big ticket items that really, that really pushed that ahead. Um, now, one of the things, and we talked to um, a couple of folks, uh, they do say uh, there's some inflationary, pressures in, in there. So, you know, um, uh, we talked to one builder and he said that they're seeing 10 to 10% to 20% higher prices. Of course, that doesn't make up for a 300% increase in, in the permit value, but that is still some of it. And um, it'll be uh, interesting, Kyle. I think we now have clear signs from the Federal Reserve that they will be raising interest rates. So that will that will have a dampening effect going forward, but to start out the year with first two months at 173% increase, that is, that's, that's pretty healthy. Yeah. And I know that there won't be a mercy expansion every time and there won't be a Simmons edition in Van Buren every right. time, but still right. I would say the fact that those additions are happening now is a positive sign for the Fort Smith Metro economy. Yeah. I, I, look, and, and the mercy for example, just those two projects, the Mercy and the Simmons, uh, are going to continue. Um, so you're going to – through this year, we will see a couple more big permit pools for those two projects. So, um, But, you know, we've had – in the past couple of years, we've had the big Mars project. We've had the school districts in Fort Smith. So um, like I've said before, about every time I think, well – Surely the building sector is going to take a breather. Uh, we get a month. <laughs> we get a couple of months like this. All right, let's move on to the smaller town of Mulberry in Crawford County. It is home of, if you're familiar with Mulberry, the Dairy Dip. Also, there soon will be a new cold storage unit. Yes, you know, being a small town boy, I, and I truly am. I'm an old farm boy from. Johnson County, Arkansas from Lamar. Um, I love these business stories where we get, where there's a significant investment in a small town. Uh, and this is a $24 million, an estimated $24 million facility. It's a cold storage warehouse. I think a lot of folks in Northwest Arkansas and Fort Smith are familiar with Zero Mountain, which is now Americold, but this is a similar facility. Uh, the in entire facility is essentially a blast freezer um, where they can take temperatures um, from uh, down to 20 degrees below uh, Fahrenheit, uh, 20, 20, negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit, I should say, very quick. Uh, and by quick, I mean, you know, roughly in about 18 hours. So they can quick freeze items. Um, and it'll create uh, up to 25 to 30 jobs when they get finished. And, they, and a couple of the primary owners in the project, Doug Bowen and Darren Winstead, who are Alma graduates, Alma High School graduates, um, are behind this. They're very confident. Um, you can hear it in their voice when you talk to them that this that this will just be um, kind of the first phase and what they think will be a larger footprint there in Alma for warehousing and logistics, logistics operations. Uh, those two gentlemen also own a trucking fleet or refrigerated trucking fleet where you can load those frozen items into that trailer and it keeps it refrigerated or frozen when it moved from point A to point B. They've got about 55 trucks. The name of the company is called Ducks Produce, which I think is a pretty clever name. Um, and they're going to expand that even to 75 trucks with 92 trailers by the end of this year. So, um, that town's not only going to see this expansion of this facility, um, they'll see an expansion of a trucking firm. So, and you've got to think about, you know, when you go from 55 trucks to 75 trucks, that's not just drivers. That's going to be support staff, maintenance crew, that kind of folks going with that. So it's a good story for Mulberry. Um, and this is also kind of an interesting, in a very small way, an interesting part of what I think is going to be a shakeout. Um, not so much a shakeout, but a change in the U.S. supply chain. You know, for decades now, we've been in a 
kind of a just-in-time uh, system. Well, we saw that fail uh, to some degree with the pandemic. Um, and so I think some companies, retailers are moving to where, well, we may do some just in time, but we still need to have a backup plan. We need to still have a warehouse here and there and spaced out around the country. And um, I, I, I suspect that that's, that's uh, going to help these folks at uh, Compass Cold, which is the name of the company, Van Buren. Um, it's going to help them kind of reach that larger footprint that they're open for. Finally, I want to ask you about uh, the panel that you mentioned earlier, the Better Communities Town Hall that uh, talked business and politics, one of the the hosts and sponsors for Tuesday. There was a conversation about pulling together and unity during the panel discussion, wasn't there? Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, First Security Bank, uh, the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, uh, Fort Smith Regional Chamber of Commerce were sponsors. Um, Roby Brock and myself moderated the panel discussion <clears throat> and, you know, you, you never you know you've done this before, Kyle. You never know. You think you've got a few questions, but you never know where the discussion is going to go. And um, I was very surprised, pleasantly so, that um, Judy McReynolds, who's head of ArcBest, uh, she's the chair, president, and CEO, Dr. Teresa Riley, chancellor at the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, um, and Kyle Parker, uh, he's head of the Arkansas Colleges of Health Education, which is has and will continue to have a huge impact on the Fort Smith metro economy, where the panelists on one discussion, and they really, the, the question I asked them is, how does a community recruit and retain the talent needed to grow? Because in the past, you know, people went moved to a community where the jobs are, and people now decide where they want to move and then look for a job. It's really been reversed. And, but they talked about diversity, the need for um, people to work together. And, you know, uh, Mr. Parker had a great quote. He said, you know, all colors, all religions, um, they've got to come together, you know, and he talked about the Fort Smith history of, of um, you know, bringing in people from uh, Vietnam, from Haitians, Cubans. He suspected we may get some Ukrainians and people from Afghanistan, but he said, um, you know, the beauty of, of Fort Smith, in his opinion, that is highly diverse and we've got to find a way to connect all those people, make them feel welcome, make them feel part of um, the socioeconomic structure of the Fort Smith metro economy. And, and both Dr. Riley and um, Judy McReynolds also talked about how that is necessary and how education has to be a part of that diversity. So I encourage everybody to go look at the story, but hopefully that unity, that talk of diversity is something that can, be more of a focus and more of a push for leadership in the region. You can find that story and more about everything we've talked about at talkbusiness.net. Michael Tilley joins us every Friday from his office in Fort Smith. All right. Enjoy that 70 degrees on Sunday. We'll talk to you again <laughs> next week, Michael. All right. You're welcome, sir. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine becomes an all-out ground war, we'll bring you the latest. And what motivates someone to donate a kidney to a total stranger? When I see it some way for my wife to be happy, our kids to have their grandfather in their lives, it's something that I was raised to do to be able to help if I can help. A 10-way kidney swap, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend edition tomorrow from 7 to 9 on KUAF and also by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday morning, you remember yesterday morning, clear skies, temperatures beyond 50. The Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design honored the first African-American graduate of the school, Wallace Reed Carradine, by naming the east entrance into Val Walker Hall after him. As part of the observation, the official proclamation for that naming was read, plus family, friends, colleagues, and mentees remembered him. Here are some of the audio highlights from the ceremony held outside yesterday on the University of Arkansas campus. Whereas Wally Carradine Jr., 68, of Little Rock, Arkansas, an architect and alumnus of the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design, died July 10th, 2017, and... Whereas Mr. Carradine, who was born in 1949 and raised in West Memphis, came to the University of Arkansas to study architecture. You know, as I was sitting here looking out amongst the audience, uh, I wondered what the population of the campus looked like when Wally was here. With him being the first 
African-American student in the School of Architecture. I, I imagine that there were a lot of people that did not look like him. But regardless of that, he persevered and he graduated and became the first African-American architect to graduate from this school, and that's why we're here today. Whereas Mr. Carradine graduated in 1974 with a Bachelor of Architecture degree and was the first African-American graduate of the School of Architecture, now known as the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design. Uh, I met Wally back in 1984. Uh, I was just starting out in construction. He was the first architect that was ever assigned to a project that we did. So I was already amazed that, you know, gosh, an architect that looks like me to help build a project for a community that looks like me. What a, what a great opportunity. Whereas Mr. Carradine received additional training after college at the Construction Management Institute in Dallas, and during his prolific career, he made contributions to both the design and construction industries. He was a connector, and I would encourage everybody to, he just knew how to connect people. And once Wally connected you, you, you were not only just his friend, but you became his friend's friends. Like all of us are like brothers on this front row here. I mean, he just connected all of us. I met all of these guys through Wally, and to this day we text, we just keep up with each other, and I'll just never forget, I don't know how Wally just would keep up with all of these people. I mean, we would have clients that would be just the sketchiest of sketchiest of people, and I'd be like, Wally, where, you, where, did you, where do you meet this guy? He was like, I just met this guy at a gas station, and now he's got something he's trying to do, and we're going to help him out, and then I'd be with him, and he would be like, it's Dexter Lutu, he know the most important people that you would really want to know. And I'd be like, Wally, how do you know him? He'd be like, well, I did this. And he was just a connector. Whereas Mr. Carradine returned to his first love of architecture and design in the mid-1990s and partnered with Ron Benet Woods to form Woods Carradine Architects, a relationship that lasted more than a decade and their notable projects included two academic centers for the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff and the State House Convention Center expansion in Little Rock and serving as associate architects for the William J. Clinton Presidential Center in Little Rock. A lot of folks knew Wally before I did. I just, I wonder, I've never seen Wally upset in, in my presence. I've never seen him say any foul word or have any angst or any any difficult with anything or anyone. Whereas, Mr. Carradine also designed and built projects in the Pathfinder Complex in Jacksonville for Pathfinder Incorporated, a nonprofit organization that provides support services for people with developmental disabilities and behavioral health needs in 13 locations throughout the state, and he also served on its board of directors for several years. He failed when he was here. He failed out. I, I don't think that was mentioned. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Uh, but he failed out because he was starting up too much while he was here at school. Uh, and he got an F, got several Fs. And any time I messed up in school, he would show him, he would share his report card with me uh, and really give me a lot of lessons on the value of school and something you care about. You know, he said he cared about being an architect. It didn't show in his first semester here, and he had to refocus his life uh, and go back to school. So I take that with me with almost everything I do, is making sure my focus is straight. Whereas, Mr. Karen was known for his gentle temperament, generosity, and concern for others. And he served as a mentor to many minority building contractors in central Arkansas, including the founding in 1986 of the Arkansas chapter of the National Association of Minority Contractors, an organization that has African-American, Hispanic, Asian, and Native American members, and... Whereas Mr. Carradine was also known for his work ethic, integrity, humility, and it was made perfectly clear this afternoon, generosity, as proven by his unselfish investment in the professional lives of his colleagues and professional peers, this investment being evidenced through his service as a mentor to many up-and-coming architectural and interior designers of color in central Arkansas. 
when I first heard about Miss Caridot's achievements, I felt happy that someone of with the same skin tone as myself was able to succeed and be great in some in a place where we had not normally been appreciated or been excelling at. But it, at the same time, it made me think back to when I was a child, when my mother would tell me, as you get through the school and you get through life, you have to exceed and be great to be recognized for something that's considered normal. But at the same time, you cannot take away what that normalcy is from what you are doing today. I find that the fact that he was the first to make it through here is not only inspiring, but it's motivating. Therefore, be it resolved by the Board of Trustees of the University of Arkansas that an entrance portal of Vol Walker Hall at the University of Arkansas henceforth be named the Wallace Reed Caradine Memorial Entry in his honor to recognize, commemorate, and celebrate Mr. Caradine's life and contributions to the state of Arkansas, the University of Arkansas, and the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design. Ladies and gentlemen, students of all ages of architecture, design, landscape architecture, interior design, we proudly proclaim the Wally Caradine Memorial Entry, Ball Walker Hall at the Faye Jones School. Highlights from yesterday's official naming of the East Entrance of Ball Walker Hall in honor of architect, creator, mentor, and first African-American graduate of what is now known as the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design, Wallace Reed Caradine. Speakers yesterday included Dexter Doyne, Ernest Duckery, Quendici, Reginald Wright, W. Reed Caradine, Carter Brooks, Peter McKeith, and Ethel Goodstein Murphy. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, bringing live music to the auditorium in Eureka Springs. Appearing Wednesday, March 23rd, is American singer-songwriter Lyle Lovett and his acoustic band. And performing Friday, March 25th, is the Marshall Tucker Band 50th Anniversary Tour with the Outlaws. Tickets at thundertix.com for more. This is Ozarks at Large. The Dirty South is the newest exhibit at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. The mixed-medium exhibition reveals how Southern black culture has shaped visual art and musical expression over the last 100 years. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore toured the exhibit yesterday, and he brings us along this sonic exploration. In 1995, upon accepting the award for Best New Rap Group at the Source Awards, Andre 3000 of the Atlanta-based duo Outkast took to the mic and said, Them closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and don't nobody want to hear it, but it's like, this the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. The South got something to say. Valerie Cassell Oliver is the Sidney and Francis Lewis Family Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and the curator for the Dirty South. She says this exhibit is very personal to her as a black southerner who wasn't originally proud to be from the South. For me growing up in Houston, it was something that I kind of ran from the South, thinking that it was not a space of, 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 of sophistication that I wanted to be in a different kind of place that allowed a level of freedom and liberation. And it's just like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, you realize all along you've had those ruby slippers and that power and that authenticity that sustains you have been right with you all along. The subtitle for the exhibit is Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse. And as a radio show, it only makes sense to take you through the exhibit sonically. So let's head inside. As soon as you open the door, you see a nature scene projected into a corner of the room, and you hear the sounds of wind and water. Here's Valerie. Well, well, the first section is really the work by Allison Janae Hamilton, which is uh, a work called Wasissa, and it is a waterway. It's a canal that's in northern Florida, and so you get that sense of water and uh, the idea of water being a connective tissue between the spiritual and the physical realms. The exhibit moves through time chronologically for the most part. 
The first theme is landscape, which presents the transformation as the South being a region of trauma and forced unpaid labor to being a place of pride and life. As we round the corner, we can hear the proclamations and gospel message of Sister Gertrude Morgan. Valerie again. And it really is all of her, the songs, spiritual songs, Christian songs, and then of course her own um, imploring of those to come to Christ. At the widest point in the exhibit, the vastness of the diaspora of African-American culture is also on display. We see elements of African, Caribbean, and Cajun ancestry mixing in harmony with the Americanness of the culture. We know that that African-American South is an amalgamation of many different cultures coming together. We know that even though we give the moniker to New York as the original melting pot, we know that that original melting pot has always been in the South with this sort of confluences of European, African, and indigenous American cultures. And that has only expanded as time has gone forward, as we see new communities coming into the South from you know, Southeast Asia, from you know, uh, South America. So the South is really the gateway to the world. As we continue on through the exhibition, a projected video of a fantastical formation of musicians and masked performers line a street in New Orleans. The best way to describe it is a marching band meets an African celebration parade with a mixture of Mardi Gras vibes. And as we march into the 21st century, we hear the strongest influences of hip-hop culture. As we watch and listen to a film that could have very well been featured on world star hip-hop. The video is laden with meme culture video clips, hip-hop artists like Drake and Chance the Rapper, black and white scenes of old black gospel and blues singers performing, and news footage of young black women and men being assaulted by the police. Ultralight Beam by Kanye West underscores the dizzying footage. And it ends as abruptly as it begins. As you think about coming to Arkansas, a place where on a political level, there's a lot of tension around the idea of critical race theory. There's a lot of tension around what should and shouldn't be taught to children. What do you hope an exhibit like this says to a state where there's a lot of tension around what is being taught to students in the school system? Well, I mean, the reality is it's not just Arkansas, is it, right? I mean, we are grappling with the sort of mythology, and let's say it is a mythology, around critical race theory. I think it is a subtext for not really telling the truth of the authentic American narrative. The American story is an elegy. It, it, it's mournful, it's soulful, it's filled with spaces in which we need to uh, come to terms with the realities that have taken place. An exhibit like this, as with many spaces, really does try to talk about an authentic 
narrative. And this is an authentic narrative. There's nothing um, provocative about it. It is simply what it is. And we need to sit in our truths. I don't think, you know, this is really a preface to understanding America. You know, Monty Perry has a beautiful book called South to America. And you really can't tell the American story without telling the African-American Southern story. So I'm hopeful that this is a small contribution toward that. The Dirty South is on view March 12th through July 25th. Tickets are $12 and available on the Crystal Bridges website. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Quick thank you to everybody who made last night's first night of NWA Fashion Week such a success. The designers, the models, the team at Interform that presents Fashion Week, the tech-savvy folks at Forge who handled the lights and sound, my co-MC last night, Sunshine Broder, and, and the Bentonville Fire Department who gave us the all-clear to go back inside to the momentary after a brief fire alarm pause. NWA Fashion Week continues through Saturday night at the momentary. Details at interform.art. For the past 37 years, you've depended on KUAF and NPR for important news, facts, and context. Every day, you learn something new and go beyond the headlines to better understand your world. And it is because of listener support that we're able to make that possible. Your gift keeps unique programming on the air and available for everyone in our region. Give back to the public radio station that has given you so much for more than three decades during our spring on-air fundraiser beginning Monday, March 28th. Thanks. This is Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone is Becca Martin-Brown, who is the features editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. We're aligning schedules this week, which isn't always easy. So, Becca, you and I are actually talking on Thursday which means eh, some things may alter depending on the weather on Friday. <laughs> which means we're going to throw all this stuff at you, and then it's going to snow 52 inches and none of it will happen. So that's not an official weather forecast, and KUAF is not responsible for my opinion about the weather. <laughs> so we're just going to, since we're talking on Thursday afternoon, we're just going to act as if this all blows over. Though chances are, by the time you're hearing this, there's white stuff on the ground. So, or there's not. Or there's not, right? I have to lead by telling you about a cartoon, which is really lame, but I love this cartoon. I used to have it on my desk, where it's a fashion editor writing something about the new spring little black dress. Yeah. And she's got on jeans and a sweatshirt and a baseball cap pulled down over her face. And that's how I feel when I try to talk to you about Northwest Arkansas Fashion Week. I got you. I don't wear clothes anymore, but other people do. I will tell you, as we are speaking here on a Thursday afternoon, I am just hours away. I'm really about 15 minutes away from getting in my car to drive to MC the first night of Fashion Week. And it took me a oh, long time. Cool. It took me a long time to decide what to wear. Friday, they're apparently going to headline with a focus on hair and makeup, which is cool. And then also featured that night will be Waste Garden by designer Bryce Arroyos, which was formed through a long-term relationship with Crystal Bridges and in response to the exhibit in some form or fashion at the momentary. And then the final night will feature New York City-based a New York City-based designer, Renat Brodash, who was a contestant on Amazon Prime's Making the Cut. All these things happen at 6.30 on Friday and Saturday night at the Momentary in Bentonville. You can find out more at Interform, which is the organization that hosts Northwest Arkansas Fashion Week, interform.art slash fashion hyphen week. And there will also be a panel discussion on the rise of regional fashion at 2 o'clock Saturday at the Momentary, and that's free. Now, if your fashion trends like mine does. There's an exhibit at the Rogers Historical Museum that you might feel more comfortable with. All right. It's about aprons. Ah, well, that's fashion. You bet. And it, it's called Aprons Function to Fad, and it talks about how important aprons became. They went from being strictly utilitarian to being something that was a novelty. And they still are. Yeah. And they've got a lot of, it's all locally 
sourced. And so they've got a lot of stories about Rogers in Northwest Arkansas in these aprons. One of them is a sewing apron that was once owned by Mary Van Winkle Steele of Rogers, and it dates to around the turn of the 20th century. And I'm going to make one. It's got pockets and flaps and everything to hold stuff you need when you're sewing. So this continues through April 9th. Hours are 10 to 4, Tuesday through Saturday at the Rogers Historical Museum and at 313 South 2nd. If you've never seen the new building, wow, go there. Also Friday and Saturday nights, there is a fundraiser for Havenwood that is opera music. And it's happening at 7 o'clock at First Church of Christ Scientist on Rolling Hills Drive in Fayetteville. Admission is free, but donations are, of course, accepted for Havenwood. Arts Live is doing, gee, one of my favorite kids' shows, Lord of the Flies. <laughs> yeah, the feel-good production of the year. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was a little darker than my taste in theater. But, you know, for older kids, there's a lot of lessons in there. 7 o'clock Friday, 2 and 7 on Saturday, and 2 on Sunday. Tickets are 10 to $12 at Arts Live Theater at 818 North Sang Avenue in Fayetteville. And then Theater Squared is still doing Tiger Style to Asian Americans trying to figure out how to grow up. That continues through April 3rd. If you were hoping to go to the Cane Hill Kite Festival on Saturday, it has been canceled. Not postponed, but canceled this year. Yeah. Also on Saturday, there's a Hear Our Voices at 11 a.m. at the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. There's a Birds of Prey program at 11 a.m. with Lynn Scombato at Hobbs State Park. And on Saturday evening, the Best of the Fest showcase featuring award winning titles from the Fayetteville Film Festival at 7 p.m. at Walton Art Center in Fayetteville, and tickets for that are $15. And also this weekend, the Northwest Arkansas Audio Theater Troupe is presenting my boyfriend's favorite movie, but presented as an audio theater performance, Casablanca. That's my favorite movie. Is it? Oh, yeah, it's a perfect movie. It's perfectly cast, everything, everything, everything I love about that movie. So he tells me this production is at three o'clock on Saturday at the Fayetteville Public Library and it's free or two o'clock on Sunday at 214 Create at 214 South Main Street in Springdale. Us old folks know it better as the Art Center of the Ozarks, but it isn't anymore. And tickets for that are five to ten dollars. I think I may actually get him to go see theater this weekend. Yeah, sounds like it. All right. Here's looking at you, kid. Becca Martin-Brown is Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Don't forget, we recorded this on Thursday, so check to make sure what you're going to is happening if there is winter weather. Don't worry, spring is almost here. The first BWC Assemble of 2022 is March 15th and will feature Kate Adams and Sonali Batra of Walmart, along with Julie McWhorter, CEO of Willow Creek Women's Hospital and Northwest Physician Special Hospital. Complimentary access for students, educators, and entrepreneurs is available. NWABusinessWomensConference.com for tickets and information. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series, continues on Friday, March 18th with musical performance by modeling and lunch from Arcega's Mill District. Registration is required and masks are recommended. KUAF.com for more information. The Lunch Hour podcast featuring Amour and Secondhand Smoke is now available on KUAF's YouTube page. The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour Concerts, a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years. George'sLive.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. With me via Zoom is Courtney Lanning, who keeps us up to date on movies. We've got a fun one, I think, to talk about this week, Courtney. Turning Red, it's from Pixar. That's right. Uh, This is Pixar's newest offering, and it is actually their third film that Disney has decided to release on Disney Plus, free for everybody, assuming they have a Disney Plus subscription. Right. Uh, 
I don't know how many Pixar movies have come out now, but it's always, even the, the ones that get the most tepid response, it's always kind of an event. Pixar has a, is a brand that I think comes with some quality. Would you agree? You know, I, I would agree. I think Pixar, um, Pixar is the gold standard for American animation, more so than Disney, even though Disney owns them. Uh, I can think of maybe one or two bad movies that Pixar has put out. And usually my go-to is Cars 2. That is just the, their one grand error. Um, the, the rest, you're right. It's an event when Pixar puts a movie out. So is this an event, Turning Red? I think it is. Um, you know, this is a very energetic movie. It's a very hyper flow with zany action and humor. And it is aimed squarely at millennials and Zoomers who love cartoons of the recent period, like Gravity Falls and Steven Universe and Regular Show. Uh, you know, this isn't Cars or Finding Nemo, which had more room for older audiences. And I'm not saying older audiences won't enjoy this, but Turning Red is, is definitely squarely aimed at people who were growing up right around 2001, 2002, because that's when the movie is set. All right. And it it's uh, the basic plot is... Um, our main character can turn into a pando with rage. Do I have that kind of right? Basically, she, you know, she's a 13-year-old girl. Her name is May. Uh, she's Chinese-Canadian, and she lives in, in Toronto. Um, she has a very overbearing mother, and the, the plot is about her trying to live her life with her friends uh, when her mother one day pushes her embarrassment just a little too far. Uh, and she discovers the next morning when she wakes up that she's turned into a giant red panda. Uh, that's when her mother informs her, maybe with the worst timing ever, that all the girls in her family eventually go through a period where, pardon the pun, they uh, turn into giant red pandas when their emotions get the better of them. So she has to learn how to balance that and try to keep her school life together and keep her friends from finding out and so forth. I, I like this. I mean, this is, we've had a, a string, I think, in the last five or six years of Pixar movies that help young people and people of all ages really investigate emotion. And it sounds like this one does the same. Yeah, it really does. I, I was very surprised to see that this movie has a lot in common with Encanto, which was Disney's last offering a couple months ago that I'm sure all of your listeners right now are still listening to their soundtrack on Spotify. Um, you know, in terms of themes, Turning Red and Encanto, they both touch on the consequences of bottling up your emotional pain, breaking generational trauma, and overbearing parents. And you know the question I ask whenever you and I talk about animated films, how's it look? I mean, it looks great. The animation's beautiful as always. As we talked about, uh, this is yet another slice of great A-quality Pixar work. Uh, the textures and the animation look amazing, whether you're looking at the fur on the red panda um, or, you know, clothing or even just water because Pixar makes even rain look amazing in their films. <laughs> right. Well, I was never a 13-year-old girl and I'm okay with that because it sounds like it's a tough world to navigate for so many reasons. This does that well? Yeah. You know, I would say that this movie is probably aimed at younger girls, obviously. You know, it touches on the transition into womanhood, uh, first periods, boy crushes, the value of a really close-knit sisterhood of friends, and all that is wonderful. Uh, it's a fantastic movie with the zany energy and lots of heart. And again, that's not to say that, you know, men of your age, which we'll leave off for the readers, won't enjoy this movie. I just think it's it's especially aimed at a younger audience of girls, which which is fine because that's that's not the default setting for for most of the movies that come out today. And that's on Disney uh, Plus. So if you're a subscriber, you can get it. You don't have to go to the theater. Anything else coming out to home or to theater this week? Yeah. So I feel like the other big movie coming out this week is is also coming to streaming. It's a Netflix release. It's a new Ryan Reynolds movie about time travel, and it's called The Atom Project. Ryan Reynolds works all the time, I think. It seems like every other week we're talking about a new Ryan Reynolds film. 
I know that guy stays busy. I'm starting to wonder if he has some clones, maybe. Uh, before I ask you what we're going to talk about next week, I want to bring up a conversation that we had in December when I it was at this point in our conversation, I said, what else is coming out? And you said Steven Spielberg's um, remake of West Side Story. And I think I said something flippant like, why do we need another version? The first one was so good. I finally watched West Side Story last night, Courtney. Apparently, we did need another version because this is amazing. You know, one of one of my other fellow critics at the Democrat Gazette, his name is Keith Garlington. Uh, and, you know, he noted this movie is amazing and it's an absolute shame because it flopped the box office. Um, it was at the height of Omicron. People just weren't going to movies unless the movie rhymed with, you know, tighter tan. Right. And I was one of those people, I have to admit. But if you still have dry eyes by the time we get to Rita Moreno, who is, of course, a different character this time around, you know, half a century later, by the time she gets to her song, if you're if you're not weepy, oh, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful and it's contemporary, even though it's still set in 1957. So I take back what I said in December, Courtney. We did need this version of West Side Story. All right. Consider the record edited. <laughs> Kyle has changed his tune. Thank you. All right. What are we going to talk about next week? Next week, I will be reviewing a new anime film, which is coming to theaters, called Jujutsu Kaisen Zero. Um, it's, it's another popular anime franchise, just like Demon Slayer or My Hero Academia for fans of the genre. And this will be another one that's kind of maybe in theaters like an every other day schedule, the way... E yeah, that's my understanding, yes. All right. You can read the full review of Turning Red from Courtney Lanning in the Friday edition of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Courtney, as always, I appreciate your time very much. Thanks for having me, Kyle. That's pianist Joey Alexander in the background. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from Joey Alexander as well as Charles Mingus, Joe Locke, Jared Sims, and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF every Friday and Saturday. This is Ozarks at Large. Over 40 delegates from Arkansas joined the Arkansas Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Commission in going to Selma this past weekend. Jonathan Reeves with our partner station KASU in Jonesboro traveled there too. He talked with Reverend Joyce Campbell, pastor of the Greater Word Chapel AME Church in Pine Bluff. It's so important because it was a, it was a landmark event that helped change the uh, infrastructure of America in relation to equality, uh, voter registration, uh, being a part of the decision-making of a country that you live in. That, that was important. And I know that there are still struggles when it comes to voting in that today. There are a lot of struggles because I'm reading the Selma paper and I'm, I'm seeing that in Selma it has the lowest voter turnout in the state given that this is a landmark event. So I just, I think it lets us know that we've got to do more uh, education uh, we have to awaken people to uh, how important this was to justice uh, and, and really to not just Selma, but America and to the world. Uh, there was injustice and people fought, died, that, that we might have the right to vote. And, and I got to tell you, I was really, um, I don't know if the word was upset. I'm concerned that every booth didn't have something at their booth to talk about what this is. And I'm afraid that when I go around asking people, well, what do you know about this? And what do you know about that? And very few people know. That tells us we've got to educate and we've got to get creative to do it. So this is, um, if I talk about it too long, I'll get emotional. Uh, when I think about the sacrifices that, that was made in, in, in 65, what was that, uh, eight years old, didn't know what was going on. But I'm, I wanna fight to educate people all races of people to understand injustice anywhere. Yeah. And when you go back to Arkansas, how do you start spreading and educating and spreading that message? Oh, wow. I, I already have plans. Uh, I pastor a church. I'm going to share with my youth. Uh, I do some mentoring at um, the, uh, the middle school uh, last year that had the gang shooting. I'm going to be talking about violence. I'm going to be doing presentations. I hope that I'm going to get a chance to do some some radio or whatever, but I'm going to tell the story wherever I find myself. 
and why is it important for the young people especially to understand the story? Well, it's important because going forward, in order to make America a great nation, there must be uh, an understanding of that part of the struggle uh, were people suffering and that they're suffering now. And I don't know that they know that they're suffering. I think they're suffering now because they don't know what, what's happened. And in, in order to whether make America great now, uh, make America great tomorrow, uh, yes we can, or whatever you want the presidential campaign slogan to be, we must educate. And that's why our young people and having the young people that are on my van, I quiz them every time we make a stop. I guarantee you they know it was four little girls in Birmingham. Not only do they know that they were four little girls, yeah, but, but to say, do you, do you realize that one of the little girls was 11 years old? That could have been your sister. Can you imagine what that felt like to be told that your sister was killed in a bombing? So we have to tell stories in a way that reaches people on their level. Oftentimes we try to tell them on our level, but you got to bring it, the, the narrative into their context to say, can you imagine what that felt like? So uh, I am full and I'm a preacher. You know, we could just go on and on, but I've seen so much, I've felt so much. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt by the level of uninformedness, uh, the, the lack of cultural competency, uh, and the fervor that should be there. So I'm, I got mixed feelings, but I have learned that when God shows you something, he wants you to be a part of the solution. Because Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. So I want people to be educated, and I'm prepared to do that. By the way, I have been studying the principles of nonviolence since 1992. I have been teaching them for 30 years, and I'm just ready to do more work. Your work is not over. My work is not over. The struggle continues, and making more disciples for justice that transcends race, gender, uh, socioeconomics, and political. That's what we're about. We're, we're expanding uh, the gospel, the good news, the truth uh, that, that makes all of us equal. Because, you know, even what happened to African-Americans is affecting Hispanics, Asians, and this multicultural tapestry uh, that's in America. So it's about all of us. It may look like it's just about us, but it's not. It's about all of us. That was pastor of the Greater Word Chapel AME Church in Pine Bluff, Reverend Joyce Campbell, speaking to KASU's Jonathan Reeves this past weekend in Selma, Alabama. Over 40 delegates from Arkansas joined the Arkansas Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Commission in going to Selma this past weekend. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lincoln Lake. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Matthew Moore, Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics, Becca Martin-Brown, the features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, our favorite film reviewer, Courtney Lanning, and Jonathan Reeves from our partner station, KASU. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional support to make today's show happen provided by Rachel Sanchez Smith. We're back with you Sunday morning at 9 for Weekend Ozarks at Large, and then we return Monday at noon and 7 with a brand new week of full daily editions of our show. You can find out more about us at ozarksatlarge.com. You can subscribe to our free daily podcast. You can do that through any major podcast distributor. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in snowy downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums.